1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so that organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are so honored. We have Kevin D. Williamson from National Review. Hey, Ed, how's it going?
2: Great, Ron. It's been 503 hours since we were together. We took two weeks off for the holidays, and here we are and ready to greet the new year.
1: I know and the first show of the new year, first live show of the new year and who better to have on than Kevin Williamson from National Review. He's a fellow with the National Review Institute and he's National Review's roving correspondent and writes the Tuesday which is a weekly newsletter that we recommend everybody sign up for. He's the author of several books including The Smallest Minority and The Big White or Big White Ghetto and One of my favorite, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, among other books. But we want to hit those three, hopefully, today. And, Kevin, welcome to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Thanks so much. Is that Ronald Reagan in your opening? uh, It is. You forget what a Californian he was, because that's pretty spacey sounding. You know, (laughs) there's a little bit of, you know, uh, Carl Sagan billions and billions
1: (laughs) in there. You know, that speech was written by Josh Gilder, who is oh. George Gilder's cousin, we had Peter Robinson on a few weeks ago, uh, who of course wrote the Berlin Wall speech. So it's all it's all connected, Kevin.
3: <laughs> but, I'm going to bring Mel Gibson board of paranoia. On the wall here. I uh, start running threads around the bedroom.
1: <laughs> we're sorry to bring you on such a slow news week, but um, let let me ask you this: you you wrote about what is it, occ- in in um, the smallest minority? Model? Yeah. Should Trump be impeached?
3: Yeah. Um, and it would be far better to do that than to have the rest of the executive branch try to use the 25th Amendment, which is a process that's never really been used to remove a president. Um, one of the great problems with our politics and our political system is that Congress has really abandoned its job. It's... Um, It's been derelict in its duty for for a long, long time now. And uh, it is a a sobering thought to think that the uh, Republic's future rests on the good sense and patriotism of Nancy Pelosi, but it is really time for Congress to assert itself in this matter, and the Speaker has to be the one to do it, I think. So, yes, I think that Trump should be um, impeached and he should be convicted, even if he's already left office by the time he is convicted. And, um, yeah, I suspect he's going to have a, he's going to spend the rest of his life in court in various ways. Um, you know, bankruptcy court, probably various criminal charges, certainly a lot of litigation headed his way. Um, I would like to on the day he leaves office, never have to think about Donald Trump again. Uh, I think I wrote a column in 1997 or I'm sorry, in 2001 rather, uh, in which I was very happy. Never have to say the name Clinton again. That turned out not to be true. (laughs) And, um, and then I wrote another one a few years later, and I was wrong again. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I'd like to stop talking about Trump, thinking about Trump, writing about Trump. But it's going to be a um, long time before we are able to do that, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, You know, Victor David Hansen, I think, has one of the interest, most interesting takes on Trump from a historio, his, historical perspective. He calls him a tragic hero. Mm. You know the kind of the 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 town brings in this guy to kind of clean up the town, and then once he does, they kind of kick him out.
3: <laughs> but yeah, I think Victor's wrong on that one. This isn't Corey Alanis. This is the Music Man. You know, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's a con artist and a game show host, and everybody who ever supported him should be ashamed of it and should be embarrassed by it. And I'm going to take time to remind him of it from time to time. I suppose.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, let me ask you this: I've um, never heard how you got to NR. How did you wind up with Nash, at National Review?
3: Oh man, I I uh, dick chained my way into the job. Uh, <laughs> they they called me asking for a recommendation for a deputy managing editor, and I recommended myself, and I uh, was hired. So um, because I'm a brilliant businessman, I started a daily newspaper in Philadelphia in around 2005, I guess something like that. And shortly thereafter, found myself unemployed, of course, and uh, broke. That was a spectacularly fun but terrible business decision. And uh, although we published the Evening Bulletin for five years, I guess, it made it. So that was um, not, too, not too bad. And I was the editor for the first couple. Uh, so that ended my career in the newspaper business pretty well. And, um, well, I didn't actually. I went and edited a small-town newspaper in Colorado for a while, And then I went to work for a group in Washington called the Institute for Humane Studies, which is at George Mason University. And at the time they had a program for uh, young people going into uh, journalism and filmmaking, television, that kind of stuff. So I ran that uh, program for them. I helped uh, young liberty-minded people become journalists and uh, enter careers of that sort. And it was in that capacity that National Review contacted me to ask me to recommend somebody. I actually applied for a job at National Review when I was in high school. I was a big uh, NR fan, and I was trying to decide where to go where to go to college. And it was uh, between the University of Texas and Yale. And Yale cost twenty five thousand dollars a year at the time, which was a ton of money, I thought, and uh, probably more than our household income was at the time. And I had no idea how financial aid and stuff worked, because uh, you know, none of my family had ever ever gone to college. So, um, I wrote Bill Buckley a letter and, uh, you know, told him I am the editor of the Lubbock high school newspaper. And, uh, after all, I'm a big national review fan and all that. And I got a very nice note back from him and another one from John O'Sullivan who ended up becoming a good friend of mine. Uh, not currently in need of your services, Mr. Williamson, but keep us in mind. And so uh, I was 25 years later or whatever. I ended up going to work for them.
1: Wow. You know, Peter Robinson did that too. He wrote to Bill Buckley and. Uh, asked him for help. And that's how he landed as a speechwriter in the White House through Christopher Buckley.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we watched uh, Thank You for Smoking the other night. And it's uh <sighs> And I'd forgotten that Chris is briefly in that movie. He's the uh, man reading the newspaper on the subway platform and shaking oh, his head.
1: Right, right.
3: Uh, terrific book. And Little Green, I, I love. Yeah, yeah. He's a
1: great, he's a great writer. Did you ever get to meet William Buckley?
3: Yeah. Um, I'd met him a, a couple of times before I went to work for NR and then, um, I was at what turned out to be the last editorial meeting, uh, at his house. Um, so he used to have these dinners on, uh, you know, editorial weeks and, uh, that was the most time I really ever spent with him. I remember that he was telling a story about something and, uh, he was talking about someone's writing and he says his pro style. It was kind of, um, and then he looks at me and says, what's the word uh, means like engraved in stone. I said, lapidary? Yeah, lapidary. And uh, so I went home and wrote a note to my uh, high school English teacher that Bill Buckley had asked me for a vocabulary word, and I knew it. And I felt pretty, uh, pretty good about that. You know, funny, the first thing I ever wrote that really got published was when I was in eighth grade, and my payment for that was a um, <clears throat> dictionary and thesaurus set. Uh, it was the Old American Heritage Dictionary and uh, Thesaurus. And the um, foreword to that edition was written by uh, Bill, and I was already a big National Review fan at the time and a big Bill Buckley fan, so it's uh it's kind of always been there in the uh, in the background.
1: Excellent. It's kind of an unfair question, but what do you think Bill Buckley would think of Trump and the whole administration?
3: Well, four I years? think that. Um... People who say they know what Bill would think about anything or people who didn't know Bill very well because he was a very unpredictable thinker and a bit of a contrarian. Uh, we do know what he thought about Trump at the time um, because he wrote about him and uh, described him as a demagogue and he was right about that. Um, it is difficult for me to imagine William F. Buckley really getting excited about the prospect of turning the Republican over, Party over to, uh, you know, and Gropenfuhrer, Walter Mitty, and the cast of Hee Haw, uh, which is essentially what's happened for the last four years. Um, you know, it's funny, you work at National Review and uh, these these populist types, they'll throw this epithet at you, elitist, elitist. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy who started our magazine had a harpsichord on his yacht. I mean, don't exactly blush when people call us elitists. Uh, I mean, from, from my point of view, that's, you know, that's part of the package. Uh, and everyone's an elitist, of course, when it really matters, you know. Uh, and yeah, if your kid needs brain surgery, you say, did you go to Harvard? Not, you know, how'd you vote?
1: Right, right. No, I've heard you say that before about the yacht. That's great, great, great uh, retort. Um, so, Kevin, you wrote Big White Ghetto, or it was published last year, and I know it's a collection. Just published, of yet, your... not last yeah. year. Yeah. Uh,
3: I guess it was last year, yes, January. Goodness, time plus Yeah. It, published it, it, in uh, November, though, yeah.
1: great book, by the way, even my dad read it and absolutely loved it. But I I know it's from a decade over a decade or so of on the, on the ground reporting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you traveled all over and you start in Boonville, Kentucky. Yeah. uh, Osley County. And it's, you know, supposedly the poorest place, but you say it's actually number three. When you look at the 2020 rankings, what confounds conservatives, liberals and libertarians about that place?
3: Yeah, it's a funny place, Alzey uh, County, because um, it often shows up in the census as, as the as the poorest place in America. And so the local people there, you know, the chief of police and the mayor and all those folks, they know like every journalist in America, <laughs> because eventually everyone looks and go, oh, this is the poorest place in America. Let's go write a story about that. So it's like you know, you're 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 down in Alzey County, and you know David Brooks has just left before you got there, and uh, and someone else on the way afterward. So, um, I, I think they're really interesting. Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff about this place. Um, things I didn't know, like the fact that people use Pepsi as currency, uh, which is really pretty interesting. It Um, but I think that the thing that most needs to be understood about places like Allison County is that nothing happened, uh, there, this isn't one of those, you know, Midwestern factory towns where, uh, the industry declined or they uh, relocated to China or something like that and uh, it, it collapsed. There was never really anything like that there. I mean, there was um, there were some industrial facilities there, I guess at one point there was a Mid-South plant there. But um, it's a place that's pretty well always been poor. Um, its economy mostly has been an agricultural economy and timber and that sort of thing. These places um, seem more poor than they used to because the rest of the country is getting so much radically richer uh, so quickly that um, it casts these places that have been left behind into kind of a uh, stark relief. You know, I don't think of myself as, uh, as an old guy. I'm in my, my late 40s. But um, if you look at how American standard of living has changed, even since what I can remember in the 1980s and the 1970s, it's just a different planet. And uh, so a place like Owsley County maybe wouldn't have looked that shocking to a lot of Americans in 1979, 1975. Certainly wouldn't have in 19, you know 40 something like that when you still had was it a third of the households in the country didn't have indoor plumbing.
1: Mm, right.
3: You know, my father born in 38 was 17 before we lived in a house that had uh, indoor plumbing in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And that wasn't that unusual at the time. So, um, but these places have kind of stayed where they are. Um, so they have kind of been sitting at zero for a long time while the rest of the country hasn't. And, uh, so part of the, the shock and the tension, comes from the increasing difference between these places and not just in the material standard of life, but in the kind of cultural standard and what's intellectually available, what's professionally available to you and the rest of the country.
1: Right. It, you talk about, there's no cure for poverty because there's no cause of poverty. Yeah. It's the natural condition of mankind. <clears throat> so do, what do you think would help a place like this? Is it bourgeois principles? Is it the success sequence? Is
3: Nothing. Um, No, I think that, um, you know, if you're a young person with some skills or education or the energy and ambition and desire to acquire them, uh, your best bet's to move. Um, You know, there are a lot of places in the world that don't make it. You can walk the route of the old Silk Road from uh, China to Pakistan and see all sorts of places that were enormously consequential economically in the ancient world that aren't anymore. Uh, you can go around different parts of the United States and see the same thing. Some places make it and some places don't. Um, some of these rural places are actually a great bet for people like me who have incomes that aren't dependent on place, who like to be outdoors, who maybe would like to live in the countryside. It's a beautiful country around there. And that's actually part of their problem because it's such a comfortable place to be if you're one of the few people who's got a good job, good income, and uh, doesn't need to be looking around locally for work. Because, you know, housing's cheap. It's a beautiful country. You can do a lot of hunting and hiking and fishing and all that kind of stuff. But if you're someone who's 20 and has nothing and wants to have something, not much reason to stay there.
1: Right. Like you say, get a U-Haul. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kevin, cool. this, is, this has been great. Thank you so much. We're up against our first break. And, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to check out our interview show notes with Kevin, we'll have them posted at thesoulofenterprise.com. Like contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at varisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
2: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
4: Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on blah, 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 whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now.
0: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Our guest today is Kevin D. Williamson, and one of the books that Ron referred to in his opening that I'd like to talk to Kevin a little bit more about is his book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. And uh, you think you know about socialism, but you really don't until you read this book. It's just fantastic. So let me first question. Let's just get it out of the way. Define socialism.
3: Um, Socialism is the public provision of private goods through central planning.
2: And this can happen in countries that are considered capitalist, right? There's, so we have socialism here for in things like the school system and certainly sure. Obama.
3: Um, there, there tend to be social enterprises in most uh, capitalist countries, and um, but you really get something that is you know socialism on a national scale when you've got a real national central planning uh, apparatus. In the United States, we don't have too much of that, but we do have it. Um, we don't really have it so much in education uh, because education is run through um, you know, kind of social enterprise but it's really done at the local level. It's not a, uh, you know, a big national program as much as people in Washington have tried to make it that way over the years with various federal boondoggles to try to manage education. But I, I, probably the best example in the United States would be the federal highway system. Um, so the only thing Dwight Eisenhower did that I really don't like. Um, I, I think it was just a terrible idea and a terrible decision. But, um, you know, it's this massive thing that was built through central planning. Um, and it shows all the signs of having been done. So with the political distortions and waste and nonsense and stuff that go along with it. Um, there aren't a lot of really overall socialist countries left in the world. Uh, there's Venezuela, there's North Korea, uh, there's Cuba, there's a few others. And part of that, of course, is because, um, When you have socialism and democracy at the same time, one of those things goes away. And in most cases, it's socialism that goes away. You know, Britain in the 70s was arguably a a functionally socialist country. Lots of state enterprise, that kind of thing. Uh, Sweden in the 70s, early 80s, um, very similar in some ways. Those countries changed. They reformed that stuff because it didn't work for them. It made people miserable, made their countries poorer than they had to be, unhappier than they had to be more unstable than they had to be. And uh, so they, they got rid of it. Of course, here uh, the the opposite case is Venezuela, uh, in which democracy went away and socialism stayed.
2: A question on that because you go into great detail to each of these places: Venezuela, Sweden, um, North Korea. The book is almost ten years old. Maybe it is ten years old at this point. I think 2011 um, was the might have been the title. But uh, are you surprised that? These, ha- these regimes have continued to last for another decade? Did you think that some of them were going to be gone by now?
3: Oh, no, I'm, uh, I'm not nearly that optimistic. I have a <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty low opinion of uh, human condition. Um, you know, a place like Venezuela, a place like Korea, a place like the People's Republic of China, it's, um, it's very difficult to throw off a functioning police state in a society that doesn't have a lot of weapons and private hands. And it's pretty hard to throw off a functioning police state a society that does have a lot of weapons and private hands. We've seen that as, that as well. Um, you know, in Cuba and Venezuela, mostly the people who are able to react to the abuses and tyranny of those countries have done so simply by leaving, which is what people tend to like to do. You know, uh, in the fight or flight uh, aspect of life. Most people prefer flight uh, when it's a, uh, when it's an option. So, and I, and I certainly don't blame people for trying to get away from it, but yeah, terrible things can persist for a long, long time. I think about how long we had slavery. Uh think about how long we've had various kinds of horrifying ideologies that have uh, imposed enormous human costs on the world.
2: As you were doing the research for the book, did you find any of those brands of socialism worse than another? the ones that still exist today? Would you say North Korea is probably the the worst? Or do you still have reservations about Venezuela, China?
3: Um, Yeah, well, China is a weird case. And it's it's hard to really even say what China is uh, these days. Socialism fails in the same way pretty much everywhere. Um, whether it's in a dictatorial society like North Korea or in a democratic society like, uh, the UK. Now the state reaction to that failure is radically different from place to place. And the uh, political context, of course, matters a great deal. Um, you know, the kinds of abuses and mass murder that we saw in the Soviet Union and Maoist China and things like that. Not going to happen in Denmark. Uh, it's just not, um, you know, not that, not that kind of country. So, um it depends on how deeply rooted it is and, um, uh, and whether there are any plausible moder- modern, alternatives to it. Uh, you know, in Western Europe, you saw uh, a growth in socialist enterprise, socialist government and uh, socialist sentiment in the post-war era. And you saw some of that in the United States, uh, as well, that was tamped down pretty quickly here. But, um, they had other traditions that they could revert to um they knew something about liberalism they knew something about democratic government they knew something about uh free enterprise and so they had something to to go to but um north korea doesn't so much and i don't think cuba really probably does either now venezuela used to be a pretty um a pretty well-run country it was once one of the wealthiest countries in the uh, western hemisphere which is a sobering reminder that you can lose everything pretty quickly uh by making the wrong political decisions
2: yeah and uh china seems to be emerging to some extent because of the markets but uh, ron and i have a real concern for what's going to happen in in hong kong have you have you uh any thoughts of the, the situation in hong kong what's going to happen there
3: yeah i was i was there uh summer before last uh, in fact for a short period of time um hong kong is going to get crushed I just don't think it has any uh, future. I wouldn't invest there. And if I was living there and I had a way to get out, I would get out. I think the United States ought to offer essentially a Hong Kong visa to everybody who wants to leave Hong Kong. Um, You know, basic criminal background check, uh, that kind of thing. Make sure they're not Chinese operatives or whatnot. But um, the people who want to leave Hong Kong um, should be welcomed here and should be welcomed in the rest of the world. And I think it wouldn't be right to abandon them to uh, that kind of tyranny. I think yeah, the, UK, the UK's been talking about doing this, of course, because of their history with Hong Kong. And uh, I hope they will, but I think that we should um, do it as well. I think we're in a better position to absorb
2: uh, those immigrants
3: than, than the UK is.
2: It would be great for us just from a mindshare perspective. You know, we, yeah. we play the Reagan speech about economy in mind, and to, to have, have those great minds come, come here would be fantastic. Yeah,
3: and, and the sort of people who want to emigrate, of course, and get away and who have the, um, the energy to do so are exactly the people you want in your country. I remember when the big subprime mortgage crisis hit, uh, my old boss at the Indian Express, uh, journalist named Sheikha Gupta, wrote this uh, wonderful column uh, saying, you know, Americans, I can fix your problem. Just give visas to about, you know, 20 million Indians. You know, we're, we're not going to steal your jobs. We're going to come there and start our own businesses. We'll buy your crappy houses and fix them up and keep them in really good repair. Our kids are going to be doctors and college professors. It's going to be fine. We can solve your problems. And he wasn't entirely wrong about that. And I think, yeah, we'd be better off with um, those Hong Kongers here.
2: Are, are you familiar with Jimmy Lai at all? The uh, he he is a, a yeah. dissident leader over there. We, we've we talked to Father Sirico about him. What a tragic story. He refuses to leave. He just, he says, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: He's, uh, he's a brave, brave man. Yeah, I saw a, a film about him a few years ago. I remember that someone made. Um, it was really, very interesting. You know, I'm a newspaper guy by background, so he's um, someone oh, with right. whom I have a great deal of, of sympathy and admiration. Um, but, you know, um, Jack Ma hasn't been seen or heard from in a couple of weeks now. Um, one of the wealthiest men in the world and certainly a powerful figure in China. Um, the thing about totalitarian governments is they're totalitarian. Um, they don't uh, they don't play. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you have, or who you know. Um, you can be dropped in an oubliette uh, overnight.
2: Yeah. And their, their social credit score that they've implemented, horrible thing. You, know, you find out that you do something against the government. You can't buy a train ticket, can't buy a plane ticket. You're really locked into where you are. um,
3: That is a terrifying uh, innovation and uh, something I've been thinking about a lot in our own context. Um, Again, just uh, an observation of the ways in which the world's radically changed, even in in the relatively short course of my life. If you try to explain to someone in the 1970s and 1980s, there was going to be this new system under which you would be given a tracking device that you will keep with you at all times and that all sorts of information about you will be gathered about your medical appointments and where you go and who you talk to and what time you come home at night and all the rest of this stuff and then you told them no this isn't imposed on you by some orwellian big government (laughs) this is something people have chosen for themselves we've inflicted this panopticon on ourselves we demanded it and we can't live without it um that is um a kind of it's not a uniquely american thing but it's a characteristically american thing and um Yeah, I'm I'm afraid that we're headed down a very similar road,
2: um, even though it may not be one that's led by the national government. Right. Right. Well, and some of us even will have two at any one time. So not only your phone, but your watch, you know, yeah. just in case there's a backup system. So, <laughs> um, but we're up against our next break. Want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Show notes to the show with Kevin, as well as all previous shows are up on our website, The Soul of Enterprise. Uh, we also do previews to upcoming shows. We've got a bunch of upcoming guests that we think you're going to love. Uh, also, our bonus episode episode on Patreon, patreon.com slash TSOE, is now sponsored by 90 Minds. If you need a mind, contact 90minds.com. Right now, a word from our sponsors.
4: The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
1: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with National Review Uh, roving reporter kevin williamson and kevin before i get back to big white ghetto just to follow up with a conversation you were having with ed about hong kong i I do believe the uk has started to uh, admit some of those people i think they've done two or three hundred thousand visas from what i understand um but what about china what, what's your take on, you know, the NBA, Nike, Apple, all these companies, Disney, absolutely capitulating uh, to censorship and other forms of while all this stuff with the Uyghurs is going on and everything else. I mean, you see any way out of that?
3: You know, I'm a big um, science fiction fan. And one of the great tropes in science fiction is in the future, there are these mighty corporations that rule the world. And they're more powerful than nation states things like that never came to pass and what we've learned is that these great big corporate behemoths whether it's nike or uh, various entertainment enterprises and digital media companies are really easy to push around uh, they can be pushed around by the government of china they can be pushed around by various you know sort of social justice domestic political constituencies. Uh, They can be pushed around by politicians. They can be pushed around by various kinds of activists. Um, There's a a particular kind of economy. I write about this in The Smallest Minority, uh, which contains a, a big chapter about the use of corporations and employment as an instrument of political discipline. When you're a great big company like Google, you've got a lot of people who work for you who aren't really part of the core mission of the company. You know, you've got all the people down in human resources and things like that. And I hate human resources departments. When is. I'm always beating <laughs> on human resources. Uh, in other words. <clears throat> and, um, but eventually that becomes the majority of your people um, who aren't people who are particularly involved in what it is you really characteristically do, who don't have the kind of talent or intelligence or ability to uh, create something like Google. They're the you know, great sort of corporate parasite class that hangs on to businesses like that. And, uh, you know, the sort of service economy within the company. And they tend to be um, politically uh, demanding in lots of ways. And we've seen this at places like, um, oh, like when, you know, Roseanne Barr got fired by uh, ABC when they canceled her show. It wasn't because of some jackass on Twitter was saying ABC must cancel the show. It came from within the company. Uh, Me at the Atlantic was the same thing. um you've seen that with um books getting canceled uh it's not because someone on facebook is bullying a great big multinational publishing company into not publishing a book it's pressure from the inside uh where that's happening again i've experienced that as well with a major book publisher so um yeah i mean the people who can't stand up to uh, angry uh kind of caitlin's as i call them at home <laughs> no they're not going to stand up to beijing not, not to begin with. I think that um, I'm not a China expert. I don't put myself forward as a China expert. I'm a guy who's read some books about China. But my, my view of China is that it is a genuinely new thing uh, under the sun. And it's something that we don't really have a political vocabulary for yet. I think that um, we do not appreciate in the West really how entrepreneurial the Chinese economy is, how brutally entrepreneurial it is, mm-hmm. um, how much more competitive it is than we really think it is it's not these you know swedish style uh national oil company type state enterprises and uh, it's one of the reasons why companies like google have not been successful in china is because they don't have the same sort of you know kind of brutal darwinian culture they get this kind of hippie dippy silicon valley save the world mentality which is um different from what you what you experience in china and uh I don't know that the United States, that our foreign policy class, certainly our elected officials or our business community really has come up with a way to understand and put into any kind of meaningful and productive context, what actually is happening over there with this great, big, critically important country.
1: Yeah, it's really a conundrum. Uh, (laughs) There's No easy answers, is there?
3: Well, if there were, there wouldn't be worth having, you know. Uh,
1: For sure. Back to Big White Ghetto, there was a chapter where you were in Alabama, and I guess that's, at one point, was the number one place for opioid prescriptions yeah. being written. Um, but you say ground zero of the opioid epidemic is at Walgreens. Yeah. Explain that.
3: Well, you know, the illegal uh, opioid painkiller epidemic began with illegal uh, opioid painkiller epidemic um and walgreens you know I've, i write about this in the piece um man walgreens gets robbed a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, I, I i remember reading i was i was in new orleans and there were like i don't know six of them that got robbed in a very very short period of time and they don't want cash they want the drugs um we go through this thing where um we forget about a drug for a while and then people start using it and then we have this crackdown And the crackdown often is worse than the drug problem itself. This happened with heroin. Uh, It became really, really very difficult to find heroin. So there was a great big boom in people finding the nearest substitute they could, which was opiate painkillers. In many ways, people began to prefer that uh, to heroin because, you know, it's not really very much fun to shoot stuff up. And it's easier to get stuff that's a legal product, even if you're getting it illegally from someone who got it legally or from someone who got it from someone from someone, etc., and then we cracked down on that and people went back to the heroin and we got this huge spike in overdoses and partly that had to do with a uh, change in supplier where um heroin rather than coming from the uh east was starting to come from central america or south america rather and it was a different mix and it was much more potent and people were uh taking the same uh doses they had taken before and, and dying accidentally of overdoses Fentanyl, which was still a new thing when I was uh, first writing about this, uh, obviously was part of that as well. So we tend to fight these rearguard actions uh, about drug abuse and addiction and, um, and various kinds of substance dependency rather than treat them in what I think would be a more intelligent way, which is essentially it's a public health problem and a mental health problem. Uh, one of the things the United States really falls down on is uh, mental health care for people who are not rich. Uh, if you're rich, you get really good mental health care here. If you're not, it's uh, it's a problem. And you go to places like New York City or San Francisco or Austin. And I did a report from a homeless camp in, in Austin that's in the book as well. Um, New York City has a lot of people sleeping on the streets and in subway stations and in bank uh, um, lobbies and that sort of thing, you know, where the ATMs are. And yes, housing's very expensive in New York, but this is not an economic problem. This is a mental health problem, first and foremost. Uh, You see this even in times when the homeless shelters aren't full, uh, when there are lots of beds to be had, people who are out sleeping on the streets either can't or won't use them for whatever reason. Um, This is true in Austin, it's true in Houston, it's true in Dallas, it's true in Los Angeles. And um, by failing to deal with that we create all sorts of additional problems. And then we try to treat these consequences rather than treating the, uh, the central problems. So, you know, the drug addiction is part of that mental health story. Homelessness is part of that mental health story. A good deal of crime is part of that mental health story. And uh, it's something eventually we're gonna have to get serious about doing something about.
1: Because you also wrote about the Colorado legalization of marijuana. Yeah. And you say, yeah, the stoners rejoiced, but mm-hmm. not so much the cops in Nebraska.
3: Yeah, the Nebraska cops are really unhappy about that. Well, the thing to know about Colorado and Nebraska is that the people being arrested coming out of Colorado for drugs in Nebraska are not buying marijuana that they legally acquired in Colorado, uh, because they're getting pulled over with sixty pounds of the stuff, which you can't legally buy. You can only buy a tiny little mm-hmm. amount um, at a time. So, you know, I'm a libertarian. I'm a legalize everything kind of guy, but I think we should be realistic about what the consequences of that are. And it's not a, you know, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a panacea that's going to solve all of our problems. Colorado has legal marijuana now, and that's, I think, the right policy. But this imposes certain social costs and it doesn't solve all the problems. There's still an organized problem, organized crime problem in the uh, Colorado uh, marijuana market, including the presence of cartels, which infiltrate the grow houses and other stuff. Um, so legalizing drugs, most drugs, is a um, step in the right direction. Certainly marijuana I would legalize. I would legalize pretty much all drugs, um, if only because I would rather have Pfizer uh, making the heroin that people are using than some guy in a bathtub in uh, Columbia somewhere. But you're still going to have the criminal problems, the mental health problems, the health problems, the spread of infectious disease, unemployment, economic consequences. All of that stuff is still going to be there you may diminish it some, you may make some improvements. You may divert some people from prison to rehabilitation and various kinds of healthcare, but it's not a final and, um, and um, dispositive policy. Uh, it's not a solution.
1: Right. Right. Well, y- you do a podcast with Charles cook, mad dogs and Englishman. And he wrote the book, the conservatarian manifesto, Mm-hmm. do you identify with that sentiment
3: yeah you know uh, i forget who originally said this that uh you know i'm one of those guys who when i hang out with libertarians feels like a conservative when i hang out with conservative feels like a libertarian. libertarian um you know i think i've increasingly discovered that what i am is uh essentially an eisenhower republican um maybe a bit more conservative than they were on the uh in the median, in the, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, you, if you ask me a philosophical question, I'm a pretty, pretty extreme libertarian, uh, kind of borderline anarchist. But if you ask me about practical politics and what I would like the government to do tomorrow, yeah, I'm basically a orderly, good government, prudent, uh, Eisenhower Republican kind of guy. Uh, so Charlie and I see a lot of things the same way. And, um, Occasionally we disagree about something, which always makes the podcast more, uh, more entertaining, I think, when we do. Well, the good thing about Charlie and I doing that podcast together is that um, our accents are so radically different <laughs> that you don't have that podcast problem of where you can't tell who's talking. Because a lot of these podcasts, you know, they're done by these uh, Ivy League-educated Northeasterners who all went to the same schools and all grew up in the same places and all grew up and live in the same neighborhoods. And it's hard to tell them apart on a podcast right it's hard to tell them apart in person honestly sometimes but uh
1: <laughs> no charles has got an incredible accent it's great um one, one, one last point we got about a minute but i i have to tell you you wrote an article back in november uh 25th i think it was on raise the entrance fees to national parks oh yeah kevin i can only imagine the hate mail you must have got for this but i, I I thought it was brilliant. You, you pointed out that a family of four will spend 4,200 bucks to go to Disneyland for a week, but it's 35 bucks to go into Yellowstone. Yeah. But then you made a really profound point about this. And you said a nation that isn't ready for meaningful Yellowstone pricing isn't ready for meaningful carbon pricing.
3: No. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the people of the national parks are always bitching about two things we've got too many people and not enough money. Well, I got a solution for that. <laughs> Um, you'll have fewer people and more money by raising prices. Um, that's, that's, I'm not an economist. I was an English major, but, um, I think that'll work out more or less as I predict. Um, yeah, Americans are very, very financially unrealistic. And maybe we can come back to this after the break, if you like, but, um, you know, if you look at what an actual carbon price would look like to accomplish what, um, what the environmentalists would like to, and I'm a, someone who, you know, take global warming pretty seriously. I'm not um, one of these people who thinks it isn't a problem, but um, Americans will be out in the streets with torches and pitchforks if gas goes to $8 a gallon and their electricity bills trouble. Um, And the price of everything goes up because everything includes energy and transportation. So um, it gets in the way of making the kinds of policies that um, some of the more imaginative people on both sides of the aisle
1: Think that they can impose. Uh, it was a great article. I, just, I had to tell you how much I enjoyed that.
0: No, thank
1: <laughs> well, folks, I'd like to remind you if you want to get a hold of Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe@beresage.com. We will post full show notes uh, with our conversation with Kevin and links to his books and where you can sign up for his newsletter and his podcast and his other writings, which I would encourage you to read all the time. Is Great, great writer. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer,
0: Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
2: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. And we are back on The Solar of Enterprise with Kevin Williamson. Kevin, thanks so much for appearing. I know we've got one more segment with you. I wanted to turn your attention back to the book, your book on socialism, but only because this is something that Ron and I talk about often in a business context, and that is the notion of uh, socialism, but not only socialism, sometimes puts inappropriate measurements in place. The example that you give is that in the Soviet Union, they used to, you know, measure nails by the pound. So as a result, they gave Made big, really big nails, <laughs> and they, did, they had plenty of them, but not no little nails. But then the same thing takes place in the education system uh, with regard to measurement. Talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, well, one of the problems with um, American progressivism is very deeply enmeshed intellectually with Taylorism. You know, this uh, kind of late nineteenth, early twentieth century management cult stuff that you can make everything more efficient. And there are some some real benefits to that kind of thinking in some contexts uh this is what part of what made amazon such a good company it's part of what made walmart such a good company but we of course we measure that which is measurable and uh and we don't measure that which isn't measurable and then we tend to have a bias toward um overweighting the importance of what is measurable and often uh letting that be a false guide for us about making policy decisions or business decisions or personal decisions or other sorts of things. So, um, in education, of course, yeah, you get that with, um, all sorts of things, you know, you get, um, schools that are ranked on, well, how many of their students go to college? Well, I understand why you want to know about that, but which colleges are we talking about here? And, um, and what has that done to college standards? Of course, we send more and more people to college, but people aren't, uh, better educated. And they were. Then, of course, um, people can <laughs> respond to these things in destructive ways. You know, Bill de Blasio, right now, is just about to destroy New York City's selective public high schools uh, because he doesn't like their demographics. They tend to be disproportionately white, disproportionately Asian, and not to have very many Latino students specifically. And so he wants to get rid of admissions exams for these schools and replace it with um, random lottery. And so what we have here is a situation in which what we can measure, which is who gets to get into these uh, these schools, tells us something that the authorities don't want to talk about, which is that New York City does a terrible job educating poor Latino kids. does an awful job of it. It does a pretty good job educating rich white kids. Um, this seems to be a theme for a lot of public schools around the country. Um, but rather than deal with the actual problem, they said, well, we'll just make that measurement go away by getting rid of admissions standards." So um, you saw the same thing with the uh, you know, war against the SAT and the ongoing campaigns against so-called high-stakes testing in education. That stuff is enormously important. It shouldn't be our only decision-making tool, our only policy-making tool, but it is really important. One of the things the United States historically has been really good at, is identifying smart kids young and pouring educational resources into them and connecting them with it. And uh, we don't do a great job educating the median student. Uh, We do a really good job at the extremes. We're good with the really smart kids, and we actually do really well uh, with special needs students compared to most of the rest of the world. Uh, Kids in the middle, we don't do so well with. But if you get rid of the standardized testing or you um, de-emphasize it, you have a lot fewer opportunities to meet those kids and figure out where they are because a lot of them are in places in, you know, poor communities, dysfunctional communities. They don't have a lot of social capital and a lot of connections. You know, there's a, um, was it in Latin High School in Cambridge, Massachusetts? It's a public school, and it's a really good public school. It's also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> all the kids there are the kids of Harvard professors and that sort of thing. And they're all, you know, you don't get a lot of real poor people in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um So that's not the way the rest of the world looks and the way the rest of the country looks. And standardized tests are not a fix for every student everywhere, but they're really important to gifted and promising kids in places like Philadelphia and Chicago and Los Angeles who need to be identified young and uh, cultivated.
2: And of course, the the public schools really came into being in full force during the Progressive Era, yeah. where this whole measurement thing. And and one of the things that I really loved about your book is the story you told that you said Woodrow Wilson was responsible for a socialist coup in the United States. Talk a little bit about that. You know,
3: it's been a long time since I wrote that book. I'm not sure I remember this, this <laughs> chapter
2: all that well. Uh- <laughs> Fair enough, but 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 Wilson, uh, it, it was definitely of a, a socialist mindset. I mean, he brought everything through the war, uh, the the war mentality to yeah. everything he did.
3: And uh, you know, Wilson, of course, had a great deal of contempt for things like limitations on government, limitations on executive power. Particularly, he was the closest thing to a you know kind of fascist dictator the United States has really ever had, um, as much as. Um, it's emotionally appealing to say that about Trump or someone else. Uh, Wilson was by far more dangerous figure than someone like Trump is because he was smarter and more serious um, also. Um, Wilson's war socialism, as people call it at the time, was um, a really interesting development for me because you see an echo of it after World War II. World War II was a really interesting period uh, in American history because we had this great boom in prosperity and a great deal of population growth right after people saw something you don't see very often which was government functioning pretty well and uh so at the end of the war the u.s government had a great deal of credibility uh science had a great deal of credibility we just invented the atomic bomb and we're doing all sorts of stuff so these kinds of centralizing rationalistic planning mentalities um, tend to bloom after wars uh, or during wars especially so you see this in world war one uh, with Wilson. And you saw a bit of it after World War II, although it it dissipated pretty quickly. And um, there was a real drive after Wilson to keep that war socialism as the new normal for America with a big, big role for the federal government in the economy and private life and um, limitations on things like freedom of speech and uh, the rest of the stuff that we, we, we experienced from the Wilson administration. And you see a bit of that after um, after World War Two, the idea that government can really regiment private life in some ways and be advised by scientists and impose this kind of rational plan on society. And now you hear echoes of that, of course, in the environmental movement and some other places.
2: Well, we got about two minutes left. And just to pick up on the theme that we started with, of course, the country recovered from Woodrow Wilson socialism. Uh, we've been able to recover. What does the the, the country, maybe even specifically the, the GOP do to begin a recovery post Trump?
3: You know, I just think responsibility would be a good place to start. Um, actually exercise a little bit of fiscal responsibility, tell the truth about stuff. Uh, don't engage in this Crankery and quackery and QAnon nonsense and all the rest of the stuff that really has dominated right-wing thinking for the last few years. Um, again, yeah, I would I would I would advise them to look back uh, to to Eisenhower as as a potential role model. You know, everyone thought he spent his presidency just playing golf and goofing off. The truth was he was getting stuff done, but he was so effective nobody noticed. And that's the kind of government you want. Good government's like good technology when it's really working you don't see it.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what, in a way, I, I think that the sleepy Joe moniker might be what we're all looking for. That would be great if we, we could be, be sleepy for a while.
3: <laughs> well, you know, if you want a smaller presidency, Joe Biden's the right man for the job.
2: <laughs> all right. Kevin Williamson, on that note, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, Ron, what do we got coming up next week?
1: We have Art Carden, Ed, who's co-author with Deirdre McClowski of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich.
2: All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then. We sign.
1: This has been the Soul of Enterprise Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check out show notes with Kevin Williamson at thesoulofenterprise.com. Also, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask T S O E at Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.